Hello, I'm Fran, and this is Consent-Based Everything, a podcast about creating a culture of consent in our homes and beyond. Some time ago, I had the pleasure to chat with John Wall about giving children the vote, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. It was so interesting and inspiring and gave me a whole new perspective on uh, children's suffrage, which is something that we don't really talk about enough. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Yeah, lovely to have you. I'm excited because I I first heard you speak on a parenting podcast, um, and that's when I kind of started thinking about uh, the contents of your book, which I then read, and your book is called Give Children the Vote. Um, and honestly, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this because I've been thinking about children's rights and kind of peaceful parenting and all of these things for years. And I never really thought that hard about children and voting until I listened to you on, I think it was my parenting mojo was the podcast right anyway um and then and and I I was a bit skeptical initially I'm like oh come on like how is this gonna work like I don't know I was skeptical and I'm also a little embarrassed to to admit to that but it's the truth and you totally won me over by the end of the episode I was like okay I've got to read this book I'm convinced uh you know we need this so um before we get going I'll just let you say a few words about uh yourself and what you do yeah well again thank you for having me here um delighted to be here I'm I'm a professor of philosophy religion and childhood studies at Rutgers University um in the U.S. um and I also run uh two organizations one of them is called the Childism Institute uh which looks at issues around childism, and it's kind of an academic type of global organization. Um, Childism is kind of like feminism. And so maybe we can talk about how that's the basis of all of this for me. Um, The other is called the Children's Voting Colloquium, which uh, is another global organization of child and adult activists and academics who believe that there should be no voting age. And so we organize monthly on that. Um, yeah, and and you know, I I also um, when I started working in childhood studies about fifteen years ago, didn't never occurred to me to think about children and voting. But I happened to be a political philosopher, and I was getting involved in issues around children, children's children and politics, and it just gradually dawned on me what why what what is what are the arguments against this and why not? And um, when when you see what children do around the world. Um, uh, yeah, it was an evolution for me as well. But about 10 years ago, I, the penny dropped and I realized what I realized and ended up that ended up leading to this to this book. OK, great. Um, yeah, thanks for that that introduction. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, and you you talk about this in the book, but I'd love to hear from you about how you think it kind of makes sense uh, for children to have the vote from uh, from just kind of a historical perspective in terms of like the suffrage uh, and ever expanding suffrage. Yeah, th- I'm glad you're asking about that first because uh, that's key for me. Um, what I realized looking into history was that it wasn't just that one kind of voting got 
gradually given to more and more people over time. It, it was that um, the, the idea of voting changed over time. And so if you think about uh, uh, how voting first became democratic when it was first extended from aristocrats to, to landowning men, for example, what did they think voting was? And in, in the US, for example, and this is the case in, in other places as well, uh, the, the first voting regime we had when, when our country was founded was um, only about 6% of the population, which is landowning white adult men over 21. Mm -hmm. So how did they think of democracy if they really thought that's what it was supposed to be? Um, and then, of course, it got extended to other groups like um, the poor, poor white men, and then uh, non-white men, and eventually, of course, women, and then adults over 18, in, at least in this country, and most of the world has followed a similar trajectory. Well, in each case, the idea of voting changed. And so I realized the question around children and voting is not just how do you extend an adult vote to children, which is which is how much of the conversation, what little of it there even is, you know, right. tends to happen. You know, like, okay, so 16-year-olds are enough like adults that in about 20 countries that now the voting age is 16. Um, but I realized, well, no, I mean, there needs to be a deeper conversation about what is voting and what does it mean to vote? What is a democracy? Because if it's supposed to be ruled by the demos, you know, de the people, democracy, then why does a third of the people who happen to be under 18 years old get left out of all of that? And why? And are there good reasons for that? And ultimately, I don't think there are. And that's what launches this kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it's interesting because I, I had a whole, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram and uh, I had a whole conversation with a bunch of people on Instagram around this after I read your book. Um, and there were really strong reactions to it, even from people who generally speaking are uh, all about uh, respecting children, believe children are capable, uh, whole people. Um, but even with that premise, like a lot of people were like, oh, I don't know about voting. Like, do they really know what they're doing? Um, and anyway, there were a, a bunch of different objections to yeah. children voting. And um, I mean, one of the main ones was people just don't think they are capable of making that sort of decision. So yeah. I'd love to hear your response to that. Yeah, this is one of the, the main arguments I make in the book is around what is the capability to vote, or I call it the competence to vote. Um, and, you know, we, we have a kind of what one of the getting just quick, quickly back to the history that one of the, the results of that history was that the idea of voting competence became equated with the idea of adult competence. And that was not true throughout history. Of course, women were adults for that whole time, but the, the capability to vote was associated only with men. So what was it? You know, I, think, I think that even though, of course, women's voting is, 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 is um, uh, important, it was when women got the vote that the equation got made between adults and voting and this binary opposition became adults versus children. So what I do in the book is I unpack, well, what actually is the competence to vote? Um, and when you look at what actual children are doing in the world, um, you look at Greta Thunberg, Malala Yousafzai, who was writing her blog from the age of 10. I've met many children uh, since doing this work 
that there's a 10 year old kid governor of Oklahoma who gave a beautiful speech explaining exactly why children should have the right to vote. There are five year olds in children's parliaments in Bolivia and India and around the world who are doing more for their local communities than the adults are. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, children do understand politics and are engaged in politics and care about politics, or at least as many do, you know. Um, so what exactly is the competence to vote? Well, it's it's not be, having lived on the planet for 18 years, because, of course, many people who've not lived that long on the planet are very engaged in voting and very powerful people. And Greta Thunberg is, another, is a, again, a good example. <laughs> she knows a lot more about the climate issue than 99% of the population, probably. And then there are many people over who 18 who know very little about politics and are not very engaged in it at all. In fact, uh, again, in the US, 10% of the adult population has severe cognitive disabilities, which either dementia or other kinds of cognitive disabilities, but they still have the right to vote and they can still, someone can fill out their ballot for them. Um, so if you work back from what is democracy for, um, I think it's, I mean, the, I think it's for, and this is what political philosophers generally believe, it's to make sure that the representatives who make decisions in politics are accountable to the people, the demos. And what do you, what kind of competence do you need to hold your representative accountable? Well, you know, you don't need literacy, you don't need, um, uh, you know, you don't need to know how to do advanced math, you know, you don't, <laughs> You don't need to have taken a course. Um, what you need is, I say, th three things. You know, one of them is um, you understand what voting is. Um, you you understand just the basic idea of it. Uh, the second one is you um, understand that your own uh, you have your own perspective to bring to, to voting. You, you have a different set of ideas than other people. Uh, and thirdly, you you understand that who you're voting for uh, there's choices amongst actual options among voting mm -hmm. and the the only thing you need for all of those is is a desire to vote i mean once you want to vote that indicates implicitly that you have all of those three things and if you start adding other things to that that have, of course have been there throughout history but had to be stripped away over time like owning land or paying taxes or having certain kind of rationality or being a certain gender or whatever it might be, it, it becomes clear over history that those are discriminatory, that they're not actually what you need to vote. Yeah, and things like there being a, a test or some sort of like literate, literacy test or something you need to pass in order to vote, that's also really problematic just as an idea. Exactly, and we had that in the US to, as, as a way of, of of taking out African-Americans from the voting system. But there are the largest democracy in the world, India, has a, has quite a high illiteracy, pop, illiterate population, but you can but still vote um, because you can still think about politics. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So um, none of those competence arguments really quite make sense. And and so why do we have them? And why do we think that? Um, I think it's partly because 
we we have assumed we we have assumptions about children as being not competent, and so we just lay their biases that we just lay onto children, mm-hmm. and uh, they're actually discriminatory biases that, that as societies we hold, and they're historically rooted biases. So it's hard to undo those. But the other thing is, people are afraid of what would happen if children voted, which also has been the case over history. When every single other group got the vote, there was always a lot of people. Even people within the group getting enfranchised who were afraid of what would happen. When when women got the franchise, there were equal there were e- women's groups who were arguing vociferously against it and saying, "No, mm-hmm. you know, we shouldn't get the franchise." So yeah. people fears about it as well. Yeah, and and actually fear is is a lot of what I got from the conversation that I had online about this. People had all sorts of like worries. Um, one of them was, uh, they just was, they were just like, oh, but wouldn't the parents just force the children to vote like them? So there was this worry that like the child would be coerced or, or like overly influenced by their family. Um, and that would be a little, or there would be something shady going on there. Like they'd take the child's vote or something like that. Um, what would you say to that? Yeah, well, it, it, this, the second broad argument I make is that if children could vote, it would improve democracy. And and my response to that is part of that second argument. Um, so, you know, being influenced is actually not a reason why adults are not allowed to vote. And the idea that somehow children are influenced and adults live an influence-free life is, is just another bias, you know, uh, adults are human is human nature to be influenced you know we're all influenced by many things around us and the way we vote is very influenced by lots of things around us and there have been all kinds of actually interesting studies but if you vote in a school you're more likely to vote more left-wing and if you're voting places in a church you're more likely to vote more right-wing I mean there's just so many but you know beyond those examples adults are not free of you know they influence each other all the time um that's what voting is about, is people try to influence you in one way or another to do one thing or another. So it, it it's not a reason to ban someone from voting because they might be influenced. Um, I guess there's this idea, perhaps, uh, among adults and some adults that children are more like impressionable. Um, and again, this is probably a bias and just it, it goes with the whole idea that we think children are more innocent and you know shouldn't be in touch with like the harsh realities of like the world and that will somehow tarnish their childhood or whatever um and then a lot of people also said like oh but just what about campaigning like wouldn't that break all sorts of like um you know wouldn't there be loads of problems like even just from a moral perspective of like campaigning to children yeah, right. Politicians influencing children, not just parents. Right, exactly. There, by the way, there have been studies done about what children would vote for, and about a third of them would not vote the same way as their parents. That's um, very interesting. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, politicians are going to promise candy and no school, and bed, you know, no bedtime or anything, all sorts of things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, of course politicians do that right that's their job is to try to influence people and if if adults think they're not being influenced they're kind of fooling themselves i think um 
and and there's a lot of money involved in politics. There's a lot of class issues and power dynamics, and um, corporations have a huge influence over politics, especially in my country, but but everywhere. So mm -hmm. political campaigning is not influence free, but of course, you know, our, our children especially susceptible to influence. That that gets us back to the competency question. You know, it, there are some adults who are not who are you know very probably very good at thinking for themselves and seeing through the influence campaigns and then there are some adults that believe crazy conspiracy theories or you know think that um uh you know that, that there's a pizza place somewhere in the u.s where they have a, a pedophile ring in the basement i mean there's that's an actual thing that happened you know so uh, you could argue, I suppose, that maybe children are more, on average, more influenceable, or something like that. But, but even then, I would, I would say no. I mean, ch children um, are influenced in the same way that everybody's influenced because politics is about. You learn about politics through just being alive in a society. You know, you you have multiple different influences on you. Your mm -hmm. your family, political actors, culture your class, your gender, you know, there's all kinds of things that influence how people make political decisions. And those are, those are things that just happen to you as being a person alive in society. So I think another thing about children getting the vote is that uh, they would they would have more reason to be involved in, in, in the situation. Mm -hmm. um, and to to learn more about it and this is one thing i've learned from talking to young people themselves is they feel like they don't get enough information about politics because they're kind of swept under the rug you know and and so i think if politicians actually had to speak to children then um they would they would speak to them properly as to children's own concern if i could just say one more thing about influence um uh, to, to my mind, the purpose of a democracy is actually to make the influence go the other way, and it's for the people to influence the, the decision makers. Okay. And at the moment, we have a situation where a third of the population ha has no influence over decision makers directly, and so the decision makers can act in ways that they don't have to worry about being not elected again by people under 18, whereas they have to worry a lot about especially older people who have the time to really spend time on elections and voting and whatnot. So the purpose of voting is really to um, make sure that politicians feel accountable to the people. And so the, 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 with the vote, even if children didn't use it, that there would be this need to respond to the concerns of children who have who would then have an influence in an in at least an indirect way over the, what happens. Yeah, and I suppose if if voting was something that children knew that they could do from an early age, then the whole culture around uh, talking to children about politics, getting children involved in politics, understanding. A democratic system would would be completely different it would take some time probably to get there but like it would change all the, the sure. conversation wouldn't it it would it would and and another benefit to democracy that i talk about in the book which I, a, a colleague of mine michael cummings actually makes this argument but i use it in my book um when you tell people 
from the you know from the get-go that they're not their voices are not counted and we don't care what they have to say about politics they become disempowered um and they grow up to be disempowered and disaffected citizens and we have a and, and therefore the, the entire voting regime is one in which if you spent the first 18 years of your life being told you, you don't have a voice you're not going to suddenly at the age of 18 turn into a fully empowered democratic citizen. Um, whereas if if you knew you had the opportunity to vote if you wanted to, then you would become empowered from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And you would not only be empowered as a child, all of democracy would be much more citizen-driven and people wouldn't grow up as they are today susceptible as much, at least, to authoritarianism, and which is yeah. sweeping up democracies worldwide or just not caring you know so this, we have very low voting rates mm-hmm. uh, in many countries yeah um just to go back to kind of like you know questions people raise i a few adults that i spoke to have raised this issue but then it came up also when i asked my own kids like what do you think do you think you should be allowed to vote and they or the children should be allowed to vote um and they both said uh yes they would love to vote they're eight and eleven so they're on the kind of older side um mm-hmm. but uh but they both said oh but i think there should be a limit like an age limit so mm-hmm. like say four years upwards or something yeah. like that yeah <laughs> i just wonder why like i know you're not for that and that's not what you're advocating and I'd love to hear a bit about that but I just found it interesting that, that yeah, yeah. children would say that right I mean I think yeah we tend to think that people progress through that each age has a certain level of development to it and all everybody is the same at each age and I think that's something adults also believe um, that y- your number of years alive makes you know makes a difference in in exactly what your capacities are. And of course, in a very general way, that is true. A baby probably is never going to vote. Um, But but one five-year-old versus another five-year-old is going to be a big difference. And so I just don't think age is a good measure of voting capacity. So that's why I think the measure should be whether you want to vote or not. Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. so here's another thing that that when I got to the end of the book that I was kind of reflecting on, I feel like you uh, you're very passionate about democracy and you seem to have a lot of faith in it and you seem to have a lot of faith um, in the fact that if we um, if we give children the vote things will change for the better um, and I'm not saying that's not what's going to happen or that I don't don't believe that. But I suppose I have a bit less, um, a bit less faith in like the power of of democracy, um, and and I feel like uh, there are a lot a lot of things that, not in every sing- every country, but take the United States. Like, I think it's it's just so removed um, from the the actual people that you don't end up feeling like you actually have very much of a voice especially at a kind of state or national level or federal level um so that's a great question yeah i i I think and i hear that a lot and i i have um i I hear it a lot from 
my grad stu graduate students who are from um, countries like uh, Colombia or India or countries where there's so much corruption, um, I guess. I mean, my, my wife is from Peru and she says the same things. Uh, it's it doesn't actually voting is not actually a meaningful activity uh, in, in many ways. Um, and I, I totally agree with that. I, I And I don't think that voting is a silver bullet that will solve all problems. Um, in fact, I think it's relatively less powerful than other actions like protest and organization and, and things like that. But on the other hand, um, I do think it's fundamental and necessary uh, for a group to be given full first to be given first class citizenship or full dignity as citizens. Mm -hmm. Even the symbolic uh, element of voting is very important. And and so I I I am a I am I mean I'm only optimistic about democracy in the sense that it's probably better than the alternatives. <laughs> um, but um, I'm not optimistic about it in you know it in a in a general sense. But if you look at history, you know, I think you can make a case that when uh, when more groups get enfranchised, it does improve democracy. It does improve politics and society for everybody, not just for that group. So if you imagine, what if women still didn't have the right to vote? And they only got it uh, seven years ago in the in the last place, which was Saudi Arabia, to give women the vote. Um, what if women didn't have the right to vote um, still? I think not only would it be worse for women, but it would actually be worse for democracy. You know, we wouldn't have the same level of complex family law or support for children, support for um, having children, I mean, of course, it's way, way off what it should be, but it's much better than it would otherwise be if you had men given the power to just kind of guess what's best for everybody else. Mm. Yeah. So I guess my answer is it's not going to it's not going to solve all problems, but it would be much better. And the reason it's much better and always has been for every group that's got it is that you have more pixels on the screen. As I, as I said in my book, you have more data points for politicians to be the, the, to make decisions and to be forced to make decisions and not just out of beneficence, but they're, they're forced to look at these this further third of the screen, you know, so it's a less blurry picture they have of everything. And when you have more information and more influ more um, yeah influence over what's happening in politics, you're you're forced to make better decisions whether mm. you like it or not but yeah of course that that we can be very cynical about democracy now um another historical point i would make is that and this is a point that david runciman makes he's a professor of political history at cambridge university and and he's involved in our colloquium as well is is that usually um in big enfranchisement movements happen when democracy is failing um because um, th there needs to be a new kind of input to, to get over the, the mm -hmm. to get through the, the crisis in democracy. And if you don't engage more voices, you actually die as a democracy. I mean, democracies can die, um, but we're living through a terrible moment in democracy at the moment where authoritarianism, every major democracy in the, in the every democracy in the world, I think is having increasing levels of authoritarianism either actually running the country or having much more votes and so the perfect antidote to that 
is um, having people vote who are uh, is well having children vote because it would change what voting is uh, into something which is meant to be for the people, it would not for the people who are already powerful. Mm. And I wonder but if it wouldn't change things also on a on a uh, like um, micro level in terms of like within families and within com communities, like children would be seen differently because yeah. okay, maybe just giving children the vote on its own is not going to make a huge difference, but that could be one of many changes, right? That could happen, and maybe could be seen as as more valuable and more capable in themselves, uh, more like people. Exactly. Well, so family policy, just like family policy, when women got the vote, women gained more protections eventually against men, against violence in the home and things like that. And the same thing would happen with children, that children would gain real protections in the home and real power in the home. Mm. For example, I think about divorce, you know, where, where at least in my country, children have no right to influence what happens after a divorce in terms of custody arrangements, even though they're the ones mostly affected by them. They, they, they would at least have a voice in the courtroom. Of course, a judge would ultimately decide. But, um, uh, or education law, law, education policy. You know, At the moment, it's made purely by adults for adults in, in a way that's high, that doesn't take what children really need in, into very profound account, you know, <laughs> um, it, it's it's highly top down, and it's all geared towards eventual adulthood employment. Mm -hmm. yeah. Hardly any consideration of respect for children as people and human beings who have their own ideas and voices and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I think education policy would be profoundly transformed if the people make themselves right. If you're if you're able to vote uh, for the politicians that represent you out in the world, then maybe you should be able to make decisions about the school you go to and like what happens there and, you know, who the teachers are and I don't know what what you're exactly. studying or whatever. Exactly. Yes. But I think there's a there's a strong connection between democratic schooling and democratic societies where if, if children could vote, you would have schools would have to become more democratic. Yeah. And and by the way, that would be good for teachers. You know, teachers would actually be able to teach in ways that is connected to what children need and want and should have. It wouldn't suddenly make the children more powerful than the teachers. It would it would actually make the the whole policy structure around schools much more sensitive to what children really need. And so you could do a better job as a teacher. The same would be true of pediatricians, of lawyers, of parents. Anybody who deals with children, which is, of course, everybody on some level, mm -hmm. yeah. do a better job because the, the policies around what they're doing would be more child responsive. Mm -hmm. And I think that power thing is uh, is part of what adults are afraid of, of, um, you know, if children gain this right, then are they going to gain this other right? And and then it's like a slippery slope. And then suddenly they're like telling us what to do. Um, like, I don't think yeah. that that's actually going to happen. But I I feel like this is kind of, uh, uh, you know, this is a, a fear that people might have. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's always the fear people have always had in suffrage camp against suffrage. But 
that's just not how democracy works. You know, when you get suffrage, you don't suddenly become in charge of everything. Um, you gain one voice amidst many voices and you become part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people who make the choices have to account for everybody in the conversation. And they're supposed to be accounting for children as it is. And in theory, they are. But in reality, they're not really because they don't, they're not actually held accountable. So yeah, democracy is a bringing together of all the voices in order to make better choices. Um, at the moment, we have an adultocracy, which is adults making choices for everybody else. Yeah, sure. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the children's, sorry, I've forgotten what it's called now, the colloquium that you run. Yeah, the children's voting colloquium. Yeah. We should probably come up with a better name, but um, yeah. <laughs> So not the catchiest of names. Not catchy. (laughs) Well, it started out rather academically, but um, well, well, it was actually started by me and a a children's rights activist in Massachusetts named Robin Chen, who was not an academic, um, but happened to be very. Her story is very interesting because she she realized her kids um, were barred from all kinds of things, and she connected that to voting on her own and found my work and then we created this colloquium back in 2019 or and mm-hmm. actually got it up and running in early 2020. We meet every month. There's about 150 of us on the listserv, but each month there's about maybe 40 or 50 of us who meet. And um, it's a global phenomenon where we have children, young people, youth, um, academics, activists, lawyers, um, um professionals of all different kinds teachers and we just talk we just talk about voting and have presentations about it and it's turned it's become fascinating to to hear from so many different voices we for one quick example is we had a a a youth uh child parliamentarian from india uh about whom a documentary had been made about what they were doing in their local parliament child Mm -hmm. children's parliament and we had this conversation about all the things they'd done in their community and all the interesting work they were doing. And, and then we asked him, so what, what do you think about children's voting? And he said, oh, yeah, of course, children should have the right to vote. They, they know so much more in, in our communities about politics than the adults. Mm-hmm. And the adults actually go to the children to look to to get things done. Um, because they have, you know, kind of in a way, more grassroots and closer understanding of the community in some ways. So yeah, it's a it's a really interesting group, and it's uh, we've produced another book out of it called uh, an edited volume called Exploring Children's Suffrage, which I edited, uh, where some of the academics who are pediatricians and econ economists and historians and philosophers and political scientists and whatnot have have tried to think through some of them some of the issues around children's voting and some of the legal we have a lawyer some of the legal questions uh, around discrimination and so on so it's been a, it's really fascinating okay. um, can it's, anyone it's, anyone join is or absolutely it's open to anybody um just google children's voting colloquium um we have a list serve so if you get on that you'll hear about all the things we're doing mm-hmm. and uh, next month we're having one on um in yeah in march 
on the connection between children's voting and democratic schools, or just mm. you know, democracy generally and democratic schooling. And we're hoping to have a, a lot of attendance from uh, people from the democratic schooling movement, which of course is worldwide, um, as well as the home homeschooling and other people who are kind of disaffected in one way or another with educations that they have available to them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that sounds great. And can you tell me, because I don't really know, but is there like, a, I mean, other than you and, and the Children's Voting Colloquium and your book, is there a, a kind of ongoing movement that is bringing this issue up in politics, for example, and like trying to to pressure governments to entertain this idea? Well, funnily, the, kind of. The, um, I mean, it's been a, it, it act, this whole idea actually began in the 1970s as a spin-off of the civil rights movement. And there were some very famous books by John Holt and Richard Farson and others that were written then arguing for ageless voting. Um, and then in the 90s, there were some children's groups that tried really hard. There was one group called Kretzer in Germany, which twice sued the government to get ageless voting rights. Mm -hmm. And they went all the way through the courts and they eventually lost because in, Germ in the German constitution, there's the vote has to be um, secret. Uh, and it was felt that children would not be able to vote in secret from their parents, which that's obviously nonsense, but that was the, the decision. Um, there are there are children, there are groups like the National Youth Rights Association in the US, which is a youth run group that's that's trying to push for this. But what's happened, what happened in the 2000s is it got scaled back to votes at 16. And um, so that's where it is at the moment and and i don't agree with that because i don't think adults should be the model of voting competence but i am a little bit hopeful because what i'm finding is that uh, what what i'm what i've found actually is that there's lots of people around the world who who have the same idea as i do and have been writing about it and thinking about it or building into their platforms for example um um, Amnesty International UK is actively fighting for children's uh, ageless voting rights in the UK. So there are little pockets of groups all around the world doing this, but we're not very coordinated. And that's partly why we created this colloquium. Uh, but I don't know. I think the first thing that has to ha happen is for attitudes to change and these fears to be dispelled that we've been talking about and people to realize more people to realize that this makes sense yeah. and and there are legal challenges happening um in canada there was one last year and they, they always fail because the the public mindset is not there uh, for mm -hmm. this to happen yeah i feel like I that's that's a huge piece of it isn't it just like a huge cultural shift from seeing children as as kind of adults in the making in need of protection um to seeing them as whole people exactly exactly i think one helpful uh, movement is the climate movement because mm -hmm. people can see very clearly i find that 
the climate is much more important to children than to adults. And the reason, because it's their, they're going to be living longer with a worse climate, and that's why they're more engaged in it. But they can see why politicians should be held more accountable to children there. And, and why the reason why politicians are not doing much about it is because mostly they're responding to old people's. I mean, at least, I don't know if it's true where you are, but in the US, people over 65 have the most political influence of anybody in the country. And they're going to be dead, you know, long before this is a huge, well, it's already a problem, but it's, they're not, it's not that they don't care. It's just that they're not personally facing the consequences so that it's not a, a, as high a priority for them. But when I talk to my college students who just finished being children, or I talk to young people themselves, it's usually the first thing they bring up is, uh, this is, I'm scared, you know, of, of the future um, under climate change, and they want to do something about it. So I think that's an issue which will drive a lot of this idea that how do we hold our politicians really accountable to the climate crisis? Mm -hmm. The best thing to do it would be to give the vote to the people most affected by the climate crisis. Yeah, yeah, it's, and that yeah. might just just do it uh, in this issue because yeah, that's a really uh, important direct link really between children's suffrage and. Um, yeah, and the future of the world. Exactly, exactly. There's eco there's economic links as well, but they're a little bit less easy to see. But uh, that we have that economists are making very interesting arguments about children's voting and mm -hmm. why that would force governments to think long term about economic policy instead of in the very short term ways they they tend to think about it. Right. Medicine is the same way. You know, when when you start thinking about it, is how do you get governments to think long term? It's really difficult. But this would be one way to do it. Yeah, um, yeah, it certainly would. Um, okay, thank you so much for for talking to me about this. It's um, just such a fascinating topic, and like you said, like you can just take it in all sorts of directions, and it's so relevant to everything. Um, yeah. So yeah, thanks for for coming on. Do you are you somewhere in on social media, or is there somewhere where people can go and find out about you, like a website or something like that? I have a website. Um, it's called uh, that's what is it? Um, jo John Wall at camden.rutgers.edu. Or if they just Google. okay, if you send me the, I'll put post the link in the show notes so people can can reach yeah, you if they want absolutely. to know. I'd love to hear from people. I'm I'm very open to having conversations and finding out how we can connect. Great. Okay, thank you so much, John. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider rating, reviewing and sharing. It's an absolute labor of love for me. And uh, I would really love if I could reach more people with it. Thank you.